Hey everyone, I'm Jordy, the Bible School and Tech Director here, and welcome or welcome back to Impact Life Church's online experience. After the message, please take a moment to like or subscribe, but most importantly, we hope that this message inspires you to impact this generation for Jesus. Yeah, there are a lot of sinners in America that need to be reached, and so we are... Anyone want a cell phone? Free cell phone? All right. Good to see you guys. Yeah, I am a, a, a Canadian, and it's always interesting uh, whenever somebody in America, in the United States, asks me where I was born, and I tell them Regina, and they're like, where? <laughs> and uh, But I uh, actually, we moved around a lot. I, we started in Regina, ended up in uh, Halifax for a while, and then we went to Lethbridge and then Calgary. So, but uh, Red Deer's kind of... Uh, Red Deer's kind of, uh, there's, there's a love in my heart for this city, and I'll tell you why. Um, I was, uh, when I was 16, actually 17, just turned 17, I'd been saved uh, maybe about a year, and I, got, I was really into skiing, you know, so being in Calgary, went up to Banff all the time, and, and before that, in Lethbridge, went to Fernie. Uh, anyone ever heard of Fernie? So we used to go to Fernie, kind of a crazy name for a ski resort. But uh, by the way, I apologize for the shirt. Um, my wife bought it for me, uh, and she gave it to me when I left, when I was packing, said, you have to wear this Sunday, because I wore it last Sunday, and she really liked it. But it's more of an Easter shirt, you know? <laughs> it's, and so I apologize. I, I, uh, it's funny when you walk in with a shirt like that. It's impossible for someone not to say something. They're like... Nice shirt, but but they they don't really believe that. They're like, did you have trauma as a child? You know, it's just so. I, anyways, I'm doing this for Lori. Um, and by the way, Lori sends her her love and her greetings. Um, uh, she's just an awesome awesome bride. We've been married five years, and uh, she just saved my life. She has just been such a beautiful beautiful partner in my life, and uh, we. Uh, we haven't had one disagreement since we got married in five years. And I'll tell you why. We made some vows. These are awesome vows. Any, anyone want to get married? Okay, couple? No one? All right. So please don't raise your hand if you're already married. Uh, that would not be good because we would have to have an altar call right now. But um, so if, yeah, so these vows we made, uh, I made uh, the commitment to her that in our marriage, I would make every major decision going forward. And she made the commitment that she would make every minor decision in our relationship going forward. And so far, we have not had one major decision. <laughs> They're all minor, according to her. So anyway, so back to my story. I, I, I was a freestyle skier. And I used to do acrobatic jumping and things like that, and uh, I loved it. And then they turned it into a sport, uh, competition, and now it's in the Olympics. But uh, so I, I used to go off these huge jumps and try to do flips and land on my skis. And we actually, uh, I got, began to compete. Now, I wasn't any good. I never came in better than like 10th place, but I loved it. And uh, But I, there was a competition in Red Deer at the, the ski resort here. And so uh, I came, uh, my family came, a couple of my friends, and, and they have three jumps 
in a competition. And after the first two jumps, I was in the running for the gold, silver, and bronze. I never, ever got a medal. And so I was so excited. And I thought, if I just do a nice, safe jump, land on my skis, I will get a bronze. And that's all I wanted. I just wanted the medal. And so I'm thinking safety and getting ready and just going to do a nice little, you know, back flip or front flip. And, and then something inside of me said, like, go for the gold. You may never have another chance. And so I thought, well, I can't really win. These other two jumpers are way better than I was. They always won. They had better form. There was no way I could win except for one thing. The one thing that the judges and the crowd loved more than anything else was how high you went. And I thought, it takes no skill to go high. <laughs> All you have to do is go further up the mountain, you'll come faster down, and you'll go higher off the jump. And I thought, I can do that. So I started sidestepping up that mountain, and the other two guys were like, nobody has jumped from that high. And I said, well, I'm going to go for it. I'm going to win this medal. And so they did their jumps, and it was my turn. And I remember turning my skis, and I remember just the fear gripping my heart. And being a new Christian, of course, I knew what to do with fear. I had a scripture on my ski, Romans 8.31, if God is for me, no one can be against me. So I just started quoting that scripture, praying in the Holy Ghost, and started heading down towards that jump. And I went off that jump and did a fully extended back layout. I've never been that high in my life. I came around for my landing, but the landing was still 30 feet beneath my skis. I'm like... <laughs> ready to land, but the landing's not there. And I'm looking down at trees, and I'm looking down at bushes, and I'm looking down at judges and people, and the crowd <laughs> loved it. Uh, freestyle skiing crowds are like auto racing crowds. They're not there to see you land. They're, they're there to see you crash. Like, So I came around, and I learned something that day that I'd never learned in physics class, and that is this. Once rotation begins, it does not stop until impact. You just keep on rotating. And so I kept rotating, and I didn't do a single or a double. I did a one and a half, and I landed flat on my back. And literally, every bit of oxygen left my body. It was the worst experience of my life. And I remember saying, I'm never going to do this again. But I did. Except 30 years later, it wasn't a ski jump that took every bit of oxygen out of my life. It was all of my secrets and all of my brokenness and all of my hidden sin being exposed. I don't know if you're like me, but I just don't like to share all my shortcomings with everybody. I'm not the kind of guy that just can't wait to tell you how bad I am <laughs> and what I really am like. And so I started, when I was 26 years old, hiding a secret obsession that turned into a stronghold, that turned into an addiction. I was ashamed of it. I hated it. I knew it was unhealthy. I knew it was destructive, but I thought somehow I'll overcome this by myself. I'll, I'll conquer it. I'll win the battle one day. I'll keep quoting scripture. Some way I will win against this demon in my life that just wouldn't seem to let me go. And some of you can relate on a, on a deep level with that because maybe you've struggled 
with something in secret. Maybe it's been a pill or a, uh, an alcohol, or maybe it's been like me, uh, some form of lust. And for me, it started with pornography. And it just seemed so harmless early on because it was just like, I knew it was wrong and I knew it was unhealthy and I knew it was affecting my marriage and I knew it was creating a lack of intimacy in my marriage and uh, I knew there was shame that was being attached to it and into my life. Uh, but somehow it just felt like, well, I'm really not hurting anyone except myself. But as years went by and my struggle got deeper and deeper and stronger and stronger and it seemed like, you know, I remember the first time I ever viewed it. I was in a hotel room and there was a, uh, you know, a hotel movie box and I hit the red button and on came the stuff. And, and I remember feeling so guilty and so awful. And I shared with the men yesterday, the worst decision that night was not hitting the red button, but going after and covering it up, paying for the movie. So nobody would ever find out about it. And I remember thinking that night as I went to bed, because I went to bed with tears. I was just, I knew it was so, so wrong, and I knew it could be destructive in my life. And I remember praying, repenting, asking God for help, never to do it again, and I didn't for six months. And then it happened again six months later, and then it was three months, and then it was two months, and then it was like a few weeks, and then it just became almost a daily addictive force. You know, when you read the Scripture, the Scripture really doesn't talk about addiction, it talks about strongholds, and then Jesus talks about captivity. He says, I've come to set the captives free. And he wasn't talking about literally people that were necessarily in a prison, but are imprisoned in their own sin, in their own behavior, in their own life, that they feel like there's no escape from the life that they're living. And so I was living in that brokenness and that addiction. And like I said, 30 years later, all of it was exposed. And it broke... My life, it broke uh, my family, my kids. I had three boys in their 20s and uh, lost everything. Uh, was out of uh, any kind of ministry for three years. I really didn't think I'd ever go back into ministry. And it's hard to start over uh, when you're 49 years old. You know, especially in the ministry because, you know, I knew how to preach. That's all I knew how to do. You know, I had a theology degree, and that's, it's hard to get a job at Walmart with those two things. I'm a great speaker, and I've got some theology. Uh, is there anything? Yeah, you could stock uh, some shelves in the, in the, uh, you know, in the, in the vegetable aisle. So I, I just had, I was so lost and so broken. And I remember uh, my, I resigned my church. It was Easter weekend uh, nine years ago. Uh, we had the largest turnout in our church that Easter Sunday. We had had about 800 maybe before, but we had 1,200 that Sunday. And it was in Dallas, Texas, and I wasn't there, and they read my resignation. And they would never see me again in that church. We had founded it. We had built it. Uh, four years later, it was over for us. And uh, they sent me to Phoenix, Arizona, and they said, we want you to go to rehab because you are, a, they called me a sex addict. They said, you're, you're an addict, you're crazy, and so you need help. So I show up in Phoenix, and they put me in this center, and this 73-year-old man who was the founder, one of two founders of sexual addiction therapy in America, his name is Dr. Ralph Earl. 
he met with me and he had heard a little bit of my story and said, I, I want you to tell me your whole story. And so I told him my whole story. And when I was done, he just looked at me and said, you are in really, really deep trouble. He said, I've never heard a story like this right now. You're the poster child for addiction. I've never heard anyone that has been in this for 25 years and has so been so lost in it. And he said, you will probably never be free. Think about that. I'm coming to get help from his center. We had just written a check for $30,000 for a month. And he told me, I doubt you'll ever get free. And I just looked at him and said, that's why I'm here. Yeah, but he said, you have no idea how far gone you are. And I've seen so many men that don't have half of the issues and problems you have that never had the commitment or made the effort to get free. And I just doubt you will. And so I spent 12 hours a day, six days a week, one day off a week for 30 days in that, in that treatment center. And I remember walking out and then putting me back on an airplane to go back to Dallas. And I remember sitting in that airplane seat, looking around and thinking, he's right. Because I know so much, I learned so much, but I didn't feel one bit more free inside. I still felt the chains. I still felt the bondage. I still felt the same temptation level and desires, and it was just awful. And I thought, I'm never going to be a free man. But I went back, and I started to go to three or four groups a week, men's groups, and I started to go to a counselor every week, and I, I started to read and study and, and do what they call recovery. I won't have a show of hands, but some, many of you, maybe some of you have been in addiction recovery. You've been in 12-step groups, and so you know about the recovery world. And it's all about recovery. You know, you do recovery steps, and you read recovery books, and you go to your recovery group, and you do recovery counseling. It's all about recovery. And folks, one year later, I'm still struggling. And I'm driving from Kansas City to Tulsa, and I have not heard or felt the spirit in my life for probably five, six years. Now, I was a pastor. And I'm driving, and I'm not praying. I'm not listening to worship music. I'm not really even thinking about God. But I hear the whisper of the Spirit. And he says, Blaine, I don't want to give you recovery. I am going to call you into resurrection. I'm like, where did that come from? I, I just, I wasn't asking for it. How many know the Lord loves us so much that even when, as it says in, I think, Psalms or Proverbs, even when we're in our lowest hell, he'll show up. Sometimes uninvited. And so I went home that day, got out of my car, went into my, my little prayer closet, my little room that I, I do my work in, and I said, Lord, what does it mean to be resurrected? 
Because I knew what resurrection was. It was Easter. Jesus rose from the dead, and we would celebrate every Easter, and then we would go into the off-season, right, and come back, you know, uh, in, in April again or March, whenever it was. Uh, they don't seem to be able to figure out which day Easter is every year. But we would, we would come back, and we would celebrate it again. But I didn't, like, calling me into resurrection. And as I began to look into the scriptures, I began to listen to the Spirit, I began to realize that we are resurrection people. That resurrection is not just something Jesus experienced and actually happened, but he's calling us into this resurrection life, as we talked about last Sunday. In fact, in the early church, in fact, in many churches today, uh, Easter is not one Sunday. They have this thing called Easter Tide, which is a season in the church that goes on for weeks and weeks and weeks. So they celebrate the fact that we are living into this resurrection. In fact, you can't get saved and baptized without declaring, I am resurrected in Jesus, because baptism is uh, going into the waters of death and coming out resurrected and, and full of life, that we're new creation, that we're brand new people, that we're living into resurrection, that Romans 8, 11 is actually true, that the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, dwells in us and quickens our mortal bodies in Christ Jesus. So we are resurrection people. Not that, not, not a quantifiable lesser spirit of resurrection, but the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. And so I just started opening up my heart and saying, God, what does it mean to be resurrected in Christ? And he brought me over to this passage uh, about Lazarus. And you've heard of Lazarus. He was this uh, friend of Jesus. And uh, I won't read the whole uh, scripture story, but tr trust me, I know it really well because I've preached it a hundred times, and I, I, I will get it right. So Lazarus was sick. Lazarus was a friend of Jesus. They'd grown up together. In fact, there was this triune family, Mary, Martha, Lazarus, two sisters and a brother. And they all lived in the same house. And they lived in Bethany. And they were a part of Jesus' disciple brigade, all right? So Mary and Martha were very, very close. You know, we had the 12 disciples, but then there were the 70 that were still, like, really close and intimate with Jesus, that Jesus knew them. So they're part of that 70 group, even though Lazarus wasn't one of the 12. And so they get word to Jesus through a messenger that Lazarus is really sick, sick unto death. Jesus is quite a ways away, and his disciples are like, we need to go back, it's Lazarus, he's sick. You can pray for him and heal him. And Jesus says, it's, it's fine. We're not in a rush. I got some work to do, we'll go in a little bit. And day after day, he keeps postponing it until finally, after four days, Jesus says, all right, let's go and let's, let's minister to Lazarus. And he had told the disciples, he'd said, guys, don't worry about it. His death is not fatal. It's, it's all for the glory of God. God's going to be glorified and it's not fatal. So they arrive at Bethany and Mary and Martha and all of the family are there and they're in tears and they're like, you're late. He's dead. And I'm sure the disciples were all looking over at Jesus like, oh, it's not fatal, right? Yeah. He's dead. And Jesus said, take me to the tomb. So they go to the tomb, 
And Jesus says, roll away the stone. And he calls out Lazarus, and Lazarus walks out in his grave clothes. So that's the story. The Lord actually gave me seven things out of that story. I'm just going to give you the first four just because of time tonight or this morning. But these four will be life-changing for you if you'll take them in. The first thing that the Lord said is, Blaine, resurrections are always too late. The minute you think that it's too late for God to do something in your life is the minute Jesus will show up and say, watch what I can do when you think it's too late. Because resurrections are always late. They're late because you've died. And when Jesus said it's not fatal, he actually proved that to be true because even death isn't a fatality in Jesus. Because he did come back to life and so it wasn't fatal, right? So we all experience death on some level. You know, there might, it might be death of a relationship. It might be some, some death in terms of your physical body where, where there's just something that has attacked you physically. It might be a financial death. It might be the death of a dream that you've pursued all of your life and it just seems like it's never going to come to pass. It might be the death of a marriage. It might be the death of a, of a, of a loved one that just either, either physically has died or just see, like it's not a part of your life anymore. So there's, there's, there's death that confronts us daily on some level in our life. And Jesus is, 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 is there in that fatality in your life to call forth resurrection. He is there to raise us up. And all we have to do is be dead and willing. Like some people are dead and unwilling to open up their heart. To, but if we're just dead in whatever death we are, but willing to, to hear the voice of Jesus to call us out of our grave. He will because he loves us. There's this compassion that it says that he had when he was at the tomb of Jesus and he literally, or at the tomb of Lazarus, and Jesus literally wept over his friend. Jesus weeps over our death. He weeps over our hurt. He weeps over our brokenness. And he is just madly in love with us. And if we can understand how much he loves us and how much he cares uh, for you, you can begin to receive that healing, that, 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 that brokenness will begin to go away. So, so it's never too late. You're, you're, you're not too old. You're not too, too far away. You're not too much of a sinner. It doesn't matter how much you've been to church. In fact, uh, it's almost like if you haven't been to church a lot, maybe you're in a better place. Because <laughs> Jesus was kind of like, you know, the religious folks, he didn't get along with them real well. He kind of liked hanging out with sinners. He was constantly, so much so that people were talking about him, like, man, the guy's always with sinners. The guy's always, you know, hanging around people that aren't, aren't real religious. He's not in the temple a lot. He seems to hang around with these, these weird lost people. And, you know, when Jesus called his disciples, they weren't all rabbis. They weren't all temple workers. They were just fishermen. They were just like tax collectors. They were the dregs, uh, and the working class of the world. And listen, if, if you feel like you've been outside the church or you've been outside of God, listen, and you are a prime candidate for a Jesus movement in your life. He loves really normal, everyday people. Second thing the Lord spoke to me is he said, resurrections stink before they start. 
You know, when, when Jesus said, uh, roll away the stone, uh, I think it was Martha or Mary, one of the two, said, uh, no. <laughs> We're not going to do that. He said, no, roll away the stone. And they said, no, Lord, and the King James puts it like this, Lord, he stinketh. <laughs> He's been there four days, rotting. We're not going to open that, that tomb. And Jesus just looked and said, no, open, roll away the stone. And, and here's what I learned is Jesus is not afraid of our stench or our stink. He's not afraid to roll back the stone of our life and see what we're really like and see into our lives and what we've done and where we've been and the mess that we are. He's not afraid of the stench. So we shouldn't be either. We should just be willing to say, God, this is me for better or worse. This is who I am, and I absolutely need your resurrection in my life. And, and as the church, as his body, we can't be afraid of the stench of the world. Because when we get out into this world, there, there's, there's some things going on that don't appeal to us as believers. There's, there's messiness, and there's abuse, and there's brokenness, and there's sinfulness, and there's hatred, and there's bias, and there's racism, and it's, it's just such a mess, and such a stench of sin in our world. And there's people that won't appeal to us, but we have got to be reminded that everybody is welcome to walk through these doors. Everybody is welcome to experience the resurrection of Christ, no matter where they've been, what they've done. doesn't mean that we don't have consequences for our sin. doesn't mean that there aren't wages for our sin. But it does mean that no matter who is out there and who wants to hear this gospel, that they are welcome and that Jesus loves people no matter what the stench of their past life smells like. I had, a, uh, I had a head usher in my church years ago in Colorado, and he was a military guy. He was an Army guy. Anyone ever been in the Army, the Canadian Army? Okay, the Air Force, all right. How's that plane working? The, still, still got one? Good. Awesome. Yeah, they, whenever I talk about the military, you know, being Canadian, and I talked to, you know, about the military in, in the United States, they're like, well, we're, we're sure happy to protect you. And uh, I remind them of a, a battle in history where Americans tried to uh, take a certain part of Canada, and we held them back and actually beat the Americans. And uh, of course, they don't like that, but um, we are true north strong and free. So, this guy uh, was, was a, like he was a really high up in the military in Colorado. Uh, there's a base there called Fort Carson. So he was like a corporal or something. And wasn't a general, but pretty high up. And he was real strong. And so I made him my head usher because he, he could organize men. And he was real, you know, real strong. And so, but he would get a little bit ticked off at stuff. And so he came in one Sunday morning. I'm back in my office a few minutes before church. And he runs back there. And he's just, Pastor Blaine. We have a problem. <laughs> and I was like, what, what is it, Joe? He said, we, we, we have got some, some young people out in the parking lot of God, and they're smoking the cigarettes. 
And there, I saw them. They took the butts and they put them on the, 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 the holy ground of God and they stomped them into the, the, the sidewalk and they walked on in. And I swear they smelled like the Marlboro Man as they walked in, you know. And he was just so upset about this. So I'm, I'm like in a bit of a predicament because, you know, I don't want to offend Joe because I need him. He's like my head usher, and he was a tither. <laughs> One of the few. And so I was like, what do I do? Like, I don't, so I just, I, I just look back at Joe, and he's an older guy, 60, about 63, 64 at the time. And, and uh, I said, Joe, listen, I love your, your, your righteousness. I, I love, you know, the, the, your heart for truth. And, but I just want you to know. We have got to have open arms to people that aren't quite where we think they should be. We've got to just spread our arms out and love people right where they are. And I said, you know, I, I understand we'll have to clean up the cigarette butts after and all that. But can I tell you something honestly? I said, I pray for the day when we look out in our parking lot and it looks like it's snowed. There's so many cigarette butts out there. Because if we aren't reaching people where they're at and with whatever they're going through. Listen, we're, we're just going to be a, you know, we're just going to be a bunch of trophies meeting every week and kind of polishing each other and talking about how wonderful we are. We, we're not a museum. We're a mash unit. I mean, we're here for those that are hurting and broken and addicted and messed up and whatever. And I said, honestly, nicotine is kind of the, you know, it's, it's not that high in the list of the problems that people are experiencing right now. And I didn't know what he was going to do, but he just, he, he just looked back at me. He said, oh, Brother Blaine, it's powerful. Yes, I see snow parking lot. <laughs> you know, he was like, he, he bought into it. I was like, that's awesome. <laughs> but that's who we are. And it's not that we are, you know, condoning sin or, or just, or, or unhealthy you know, living, it's just, we love people and Jesus came for people. And I remember one of the, one of the things that a, a brother said to me when I was coming out of my brokenness is he, he said, Blaine, do not live in any more shame. Do not live in any more guilt for your past. He said, you sin well, but Jesus saves well. And focus on the salvation that has come to you to set you free. Number three is he said this, the grave clothes must come off. You know, if I was resurrecting Lazarus, I would have done it different, you know? I, if I were Jesus, I would, have, I would have called him forth, and he would have just come out like in a three-piece suit ready to preach, you know? Just, just you know, all shaved and all done up and just ready to go. But, but, but Jesus allowed him to come out totally wrapped in grave clothes like he's just a mummy even his face and 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 so he's walking out and people are freaking out and Jesus says you go unwrap him and let him loose and so the family and friends they go and they unwrap him they're taking off his grave clothes the Bible says that he begins to see for the first time in four days the light is coming in and I thought about that and the Lord began to speak to me and say Blaine resurrections are not a solo project we're not meant to resurrect alone. We are meant to be in community in our resurrection. You see, when Jesus called us into this thing called the church, 
He had called his disciples together, traveled 26 miles from Galilee uh, to uh, uh, Caesarea Philippi. He shows up at this place and he says, listen, guys, I want to let you know something. And the reason he went to Caesarea Philippi is it was the Las Vegas of Israel. It was the place where there were uh, orgies and mess and sin, and it was known for its debauchery. And they showed up there, and he said, I'm building my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And when he said the gates of hell would not prevail against it, they knew exactly what he was talking about. Because he was standing at a rock, and if you ever do a tour of Israel, you'll see this. He was standing at a rock at Caesarea Philippi, and up against this, this huge 500-foot-wide, 100-foot-high uh, uh, rock face, there was this, this cave. And th- this cave uh, was a place where, the, where all the people of that region believed that demon spirits, satanic spirits, would go in and out of this cave, come from the underworld, come out to possess people with their debauchery, and they called this cave the gates of hell. And this is where their orgies would happen. This is a place where all this, you know, festivity would happen that was absolutely evil. And Jesus stood there and said, I'm building my church and the gates of hell will not prevail. And they got it. They said, this church, this thing that Jesus is building is going to be so powerful and so strong that it doesn't matter what kind of sin, it doesn't matter what kind of brokenness is in the world, the church is going to have the cure and the answer in the resurrection through Jesus. And they were like, man, he took us 26 miles to tell us this. Didn't do one other thing at Caesarea Philippi. Didn't preach, didn't heal, didn't do miracles, just took them there, gave them the message, and went back. And when he said that word church, listen to this, they had never heard that word before. Never been used ever in Scripture. Never came off the the lips of Jesus ever before. It was brand new, but they knew the word because the word was ekklesia in the Greek. They knew ekklesia. Rome used the word all the time. When Rome would gather together what they would call important leaders to, uh, to gather around an important agenda or pro- a project that they were doing, and they were going to use this project to change uh, Rome or to change, quote, the world, they would call it an ekklesia. And when Jesus gathered and said, guys, I'm building an ecclesia of my own and the gates of hell will not prevail against this. He was saying, I'm calling uh, a gathering of my people that will absolutely impact the destruction and the evil and the brokenness in our world. But you don't have ecclesia unless you're gathering in community. And that's why watching church on television isn't enough. I mean, it's okay. You can learn some things, but we're meant to be in relationship. We're meant to love and embrace and to hold and to pray and to agree and to hope together and to believe together. We're meant to be a communal uh, voice in this world. We're never meant to be alone. You see, we live in the most electronically connected but humanly disconnected world that we've ever lived in. 
because we know what everyone's doing. I mean, we know where they're going, what they're doing, where they ate, what they ate. We're just, okay, there's Instagram and Facebook and Twitter, and I know everything. But do we ever connect? Do we ever actually talk? Do we, like, you know, it's funny. I'll get a phone call from somebody on my cell phone, and I'm like, what are they doing? <laughs> They're wanting to talk to me? Send a text, bro. Like, I don't, I can't, I can't talk. Like, I, I, just let me read what you're up to. I, I, I can't, I don't want relationship. You know, like that's, that's my first intuition. And it's wrong. It's just so wrong. I mean, unless it's, you know, a robocall or whatever that somebody's selling you something. But, but we, we, we are so disconnected. And we have got to move back into community. We've got to move back into relationship. And I can tell you today that if it wasn't for not just Jesus, but Jesus's community, I wouldn't be here today. If it wasn't for men of God that began to invest in my life, if it wasn't for those groups that I began to intersect with every week and just feel the grace and the love and the hope and the stories of others, I would not be here. We must have each other. We've got to open up our hearts to love from each other. And, you know, and we don't see all the, the grave clothes on us. We're unaware of kind of what we're wearing and what, you ever seen someone walk out with toilet paper on their shoe? They're walking out of the bathroom. They're just walking around and you're like, bro, bro, you got some toilet paper. That's kind of what our grave clothes are like. We don't even realize they're there, but we need somebody to kind of help us and say, let's get that off. So last thing, number four, close with this. When others call you dead, Jesus calls your name. So they were all like, he's dead, he's dead, he's dead. And he said, no, roll away the stone. He said, Lazarus, come forth. There was love in his voice. There was this like, I'm calling you to come forth. When he said come forth, he was literally speaking, there's destiny in your, in your life. There's a forthness, there's a coming, there's something more for you to do. I'm not done with you. Death will not have the final word in your life. I'm calling you to come forth. He called him by name. I remember driving to one of my men's groups uh, about an hour, or sorry, about a, a, about a year after my crisis, and I, I was in three of them, and there was this one group that was really intense, and it was led by my, uh, my mentor, Dr. Ken McGill, who has mentored me for the last uh, nine years and was my counselor for the first uh, three years. And uh, so it was a group of 10 guys, and these were rough and tumble guys, not all Christians. And it was a 12-step group. And so anyone that's been in 12-step know that when you gather in that group, the first thing you do is you go around the circle and everyone checks in. You check in strong and you check in honest. And you're, you're sober about who you are and where you've been. And so the check-in goes like this. My name is Bill, and I'm an alcoholic. My name is, you know, Jim, and I'm a drug addict. And my check-in for a year had been, my name is Blaine, and I'm a sex addict. And then you, you know, talk about your week. And I remember driving to that group, and the spirit whispered again and said, Blaine, do not check in like that tonight. 
do not check in like that tonight. And he told me how to check in. So I show up, and I get in my circle, and I'm looking around, and everyone's doing their check-ins, and it comes to me, and I look, and I said, my name is Blaine, and I'm a beloved son of my Heavenly Father, and by His grace, I'm overcoming all of my brokenness and my addiction. Every jaw dropped. <laughs> they were like, bro, you just broke code, man. You are in so much trouble. But, but my, my, my counselor, who's become my friend, Dr. McGill, this great big black guy in his 50s, graying beard. He's like a lovable bear, you know, but he's just so wise and so strong. And he just looked at me and he said, Blaine, that was the best check-in I've ever heard. He's looked at these other guys and he said, guys, we cannot be defined by our behavior or our past. If we believe that's who we are, we'll never become who we're meant to be. And I began to believe from that moment on that I was no longer defined by my shame, my guilt, and my past, that the Scripture was actually true, that if we are in Christ, old things are passed away and all things have become new, that we're new creations, we're new people. Isn't it interesting that our death began in a garden, a place called Eden, but our resurrection came back in a garden tomb. Mary shows up, she's looking for Jesus, and she asks this man who it says she thought he was a gardener. She said, have you seen Jesus? And she was talking to Jesus. See, there's a new garden experience for all of us where we can be born again into a brand new life and a brand new imagination. And by God's grace... I've been completely free of my past now for my eighth year without any going back, any slip-ups, and really it's not even a testimony of my will because it's been a change of heart, a change of life, a change of mind, a change of desire, a change of allegiance where it's just not even on my radar anymore. That's what Jesus can do. And that's what he did for Lazarus. We don't hear the end of Lazarus' story. But the end, according to history and according to scholars, is after Jesus rose from the dead and went to be with his father, Lazarus moved 30 miles away to another town, and he became a pastor until he passed later on in his, in his old age. But he pastored a church. What a pastor Lazarus would be. Can you imagine Easter Sunday with Lazarus? <laughs> if anyone preached resurrection well, it would have been him. I would have loved to have seen him counseling somebody. Someone coming in, hey, I had a really bad week, Lazarus, man, I'm telling you, my wife has been just giving me problems. The kids are out of control. I lost my job. And I could just see Lazarus like, can I tell you about my bad week? I was dead. Four days decaying I stinketh <laughs> friends beloved Jesus is here for resurrection in your life he's not calling you into just a recovery 
He's not calling you into just being better. He's not calling you into finally getting enough willpower to do the right thing. He is calling into, uh, into a new imagination, a new life, a new beginning where you literally become a different person on the inside. You'll look the same on the outside. When you get born again, your hair color's not going to change and you're still going to weigh the same and you're still going to you know, you know, look the same. But something changes on the inside. And I invite you in to that resurrection. Would you bow your head with me for a minute? Lord, thank you for these beautiful people. Pray this morning that you would do the deepest work of God in their life. Call them into hope. Call them into new beginnings. I speak against the death that would try to steal the life that you want to bring. I speak against that which seems fatal and seems to be an end. And I call by your grace, Lord, a new beginning into their soul. His heads are bowed, eyes closed. Just for a moment, this will take one minute. But I really want to pray for folks. Two, two, two things I'd like to pray for. If you're here, you say, Blaine, I just, uh, I feel like I'm so far away from God. I feel like uh, I don't even know how to approach God. But somehow I know I need Him. And I, I, I want what you've talked about this morning. I want a relationship with Jesus. I really don't know what to do with that or how to say that or how to experience that, but I really do want to know Jesus. I want to I want to just pray for you in a minute, but would you raise your hand if that's you? All over this place, just slip a hand up, say, yeah, I, I relate to that. God bless you. Anyone else? Anyone else? Thank you. Wait the back. God bless you. Anyone else? Wonderful. Wonderful. There's another, another lady. Thank you. So, the second thing is, if you're here and you say, well, Blaine, I am a believer. You know, I have believed in Jesus. I, I feel like I really do have a relationship with God, but I still have some points of death in my life, and I still have some, some areas that I know I need the resurrection garden of His Spirit and life to come in. And I, I want that death to go away. I want that, that brokenness to be made whole. Would you raise your hand if that's you? Slip your hand up. All right. Great. Wonderful. Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So I'm going to ask you to do one thing. I just want everyone in the house that raised your hand. I, I, I want to pray for you. But I want, I want you to take a step. Because every time we, we, we work with God, God asks us to take one small step and then he takes one giant step towards us. He said, Moses, stretch out your rod and then he parted the sea. So we do our part, then he does the miracle part. So I'm going to ask you to just, if you raise your hand, to just take one simple step. One step to say, I'm in. This is it. I'm, I'm, I'm getting up. Would you stand? Would you do that if you raise your hand? Would you just stand right where you're at? I'm not going to try to talk you into it or preach at you for 10 minutes on why you need to do it. I'm just going to ask you to do it. And then I want to physically lay hands on you. The Bible says 
that there's this gift that God gives his apostles, his pastors, his teachers, his evangelists. It's called the laying on of hands. And there's no power in these hands, but there's power in just obedience. And it's like God uses us as a conduit to bring his life and his love and his power through us. Not, doesn't reside in us. I am not your answer, but through us, Jesus can touch us. So I'm going to ask you to do this. Let's take a couple minutes, maybe two minutes. Would you that are standing, just make your way to the front real quick. Just your friends will help you get out into the aisle. And I want to make a line all the way across the front of this auditorium. And I'm just, we're just going to pray. Doc Joel, would you join me? I want you. Hey, thanks for listening. If you live in the central Alberta region of Canada, we would love to have you come out and check out one of our weekend messages. For more info on all of our directions, service times, and children's programs, visit our website at impactlife.ca. That's impactlife.ca.